This is Joshua Bell with the Guilt in the Cloth. Um, in my Tuesday morning Bible study, as we continue the study of Exodus, we are now starting in Exodus chapter 35, verse 4. Um, just to kind of read. No, 36, 36, 36, 8. I knew I had it marked wrong. Chapter 36, <laughs> verse 8. All of us are wrong. That's good. That actually makes it better because we're actually going to talk about building the tabernacle. So, uh, so again, I, I want to I want to remind us just to refresh our memories on how this works because I, I as I've been listening to them and been editing them and uh, on our fasting, there's a recurring theme that kind of keeps happening. We're we're thinking backwards, right? So Exodus is the beginning of all of the stories, of all of the creations of the of the stuff. So Exodus, they have not built any of this. This is literally, okay, what's it going to look like? What I should have said, and I, and I haven't done a good job with that in, in our previous discussions, is think of the book of Exodus as a church planning committee. <laughs> like, we're, we're building a building. What's it going to look like? We know that we have to have certain things. What are those certain things? Why are they important? How are we going to build those things? Why are we going to build those things? That's the book of Exodus. Everything else besides that uh, becomes fluff. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I say that as closely as I can, but because it's, it's a theological conversation as well as a logistical conversation for them. The problem with it for us is, is that we're, we already know the rest of the story. Like we've, we've moved past the tabernacle, we've moved past the temple, we've, we've actually been past two temples, and now there's a Jesus who claims to be the third, you know, in, in some aspects. And so there's this, there's this weird conversation that's taking place, um, not in the Bible studies, but in, in, the, in the idea when we study the book of Exodus, we want to think about it in the sense of it's the beginning of how this all began. Um, and so it's easy for us to go backwards. It's really hard for us to go forward from here because we've, we've always looked at this from the forward angle. I mean, from the backwards angle, uh, you know, well, it, well, wait till you see what happens because you already know the rest of the story, you know, and why am I making a big deal of this? Well, the tabernacle, for example, uh, we know that it existed, but we don't really know how long. You know, we know we know that it had to have used, and, and, and if it was only one, right? There's some logistical problems with this too. We have this idea that well, once the tabernacle was built, it stayed the same tabernacle for hundreds of years. Well, you all are smarter than that in the sense <laughs> that you know how long fabric will last. Some fabric lasts a long time. Sometimes you can make these things last, but the the reality of this whole thing is is that there's a to them, it's not about all of that. It's how do we create a place where we come to worship? How do we come to a place that we offer our burnt offerings? Because we've never done it before. That's the way I want you to read the rest of the rest of this book. Uh, well, in general, is that that's how we want to read Exodus, and and how do we do this? Um, and yeah, everything else will come with it. 
you know, like how does this happen and how does this happen? Um, well, like the, for example, my favorite part about listening to our Bible studies the last couple of weeks was um, the, uh, the the conversation about Moshe or, or Moses. His uh, how many commandments do we really have? Like we know the ten, right? But he got mad and threw them on the ground, and then God had to restart it. And he, he gives them most of the same ones, but are those the same ones that are on the new tablets, <laughs> or is it the old ones? Right? Like there's this dialogue that's taking place, and and the point of the story for them is is it's not necessarily that's not the importance. The importance is God gave us commandments that we're supposed to follow, and they're so important that He put them on stone. <laughs> This is the part that I left out, um, and that's why I'm making it a moment. Just coincidentally, I'm reading this book about um, by Anna Bowden that talks about uh, the marble economy on the road to Ephesus, and that most of the marble workers uh, during the first century, for example, uh, most likely were Jewish. Um, or are part, uh, a participant of a Judeo-Christian understanding of faith. And so when, when Paul is writing to the people in Ephesus about, you know, you, you have to turn away from your idols, um, the ones he leaves off the list are the marble workers. Um, in, in the whole list of the, you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that, it's also important to notice that in the book of Revelation, the marble workers are not mentioned uh, because these marble workers are building the idols. Why does that matter? Well, they're not only are they building the idols, but the idols do not fall apart. And you can't melt marble, <laughs> right? So, so there's this idea that, that we know of in the New Testament about marble workers <clears throat> because Rome paid for marble to be carved. So we, that's how we're finding out this, this marble is still there 2,000 years later. <clears throat> guess, guess what else we have found? Stone tablets. So to have them written in stone for the people reading this in Exodus says, this is going to be forever. <laughs> Eternally. If it's in paper, it's going to fade away and die. If it's made out of fabric, it's going to rot away and dis disappear. But it's in stone. These are forever and ever. Interestingly enough, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, written on scrolls. See, I think, I think that's another part that's just kind of fascinating to point out. Uh, so I just, I just had, to, had to make a big deal out of this because the tabernacle is not a permanent thing. And they know that right into it. Um, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, was the tabernacle moved? I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean no. we've got the Bibles. Doesn't it say that it was moved from this spot to the, I mean, it never was permanent. a permanent spot because I always yeah. thought that in the Bible it said that it was there. moved. Right. right. So it's a, it's a portable thing. Uh, I want you to think about that just before we start reading about the logistics of how it's built. Think about what that means theologically. Your place of worship is portable. What does that say? Portable. Yeah. And you can worship wherever, <gasps> yeah, wherever it goes. Wherever you want to. 
Now remember, one of the most important parts of the tabernacle is it's got to have a holy of holies. Remember what, what the, one of the biggest problems in the temple was that the reason it was where it was was this is exactly where God set foot on earth. Right? And the holy of holies is also in the tabernacle. So, theologically, if the tabernacle is portable, it also means that God moves. <laughs> and God is moved and is everywhere. I mean, you see what a big deal this is? If this is the beginning of the idea, and then you get into later on in the Bible, and they're like, oh, no, 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 no. God is only in this place. <laughs> You, you can see that the big shift, the big paradigm, like what in the world is going on here? And I, and I just found that fascinating. We hadn't had this conversation yet in our Bible studies previous. It was more, um, you know, kind of wanting to understand Ten Commandments versus 15, you know, and all that stuff. But there's this other thing about this theology that's being created here that God is portable. God Remember, my very first thing I've always said to every single group is, is the important part to get from the Bible is God never breaks promises. So if God is, says, which God does, I will be with you till the end of the age, that these early people got it so much that the place of worship proved that God was with them everywhere they went. That reminds me of the post that I just put on Facebook that was funny. It was about men in the Bible had to go up on the mountain or go in the desert to worship God or to find God. And God and women still did the dishes and did all this and this and this. But God was still with the women, even though they did all their tasks, daily duties. But the men had to go. Away, away. Yeah, <laughs> to find God. That's <laughs> funny. My, my. Uh, it just reminded me of something one of my Hebrew Bible professors used to say: "Is is that <clears throat> it was funny that the guys would go to the temple to sit there and talk and you know speak about their faith, but the stories of their faith were taught as they were the sitting around their moms." Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so. Is that why they say, say the Jewish <clears throat> religion is passed from women to their there's, children? There's a, there's a lot of interesting conversation about that specifically <laughs> right now, um, about why is it that a person cannot be Jewish unless their mom is? And, and there's a lot of that specifically about, well, they're the ones that pass the story on. They're the ones that pass the faith on. Um, and and there's, there's some interesting dialogue about that. Uh, you know, and, you, and not to completely rabbit trail, but, you know, you have the story of Isaac and Ishmael that's very confusing, you know, uh, without discussion. God speaks uh, to Ishmael's mom. Like, she even names God. And then God makes the same promise to her as he does to Abraham. That's a big deal. So with that being said, there's a lot of this discussion of, well, while the guys went off and did these things, God was speaking to the women and people. And I mean, it's, it's kind of a, a, a nice, I like to look at it as a very comfortable way of expressing God's love that way. Um, but yeah, I think, my, my, I, I, I think I would be safe to say my Hebrew Bible professor would say, that's because the guys were 
doing this thing and we were over here doing this thing, but really God was somewhere in the middle and no one was listening. <laughs> yeah, that's probably well i think it's also kind of comforting too knowing that god does speak to women i mean it's not just the the men and we have to yeah as a woman we have to listen to the men all the time but yeah <laughs> open your ears women and you can you can hear him too yeah well there's this uh there's you you all are starting to see the shift in the patriarchy right like who are the ones that are building these things well it's all the gods Right, women are mentioned on the on the in the periphery, but up until this point, women were um, elevated in almost all of the stories. I mean, if you think about it, so far all of Genesis, all the way up until this point, you start to see what women were lifted up. Once we get to this part, you can see who's in charge. Political priests, they're guys. <laughs> they have problems with women. Yes. Now, who's going to lead the the building of the tabernacle? Well, these are the men, the men that made the Levitical priests happy. You know that that did what they were supposed to do, um, but it's the women weaving the cloth. Sure, <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, there's there's a lot of truth to be said to this, um, and 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 so I get I get I, I try I try to be very careful about how I go from here because this becomes very patriarchal at this point. I feel like Genesis, after we've studied it and we've discussed it, you know, I think you you see that there's a lot of matriarchal aspects in the book of Genesis that start to disappear the further we go into Torah. And, and once you get into Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there's there's even, I feel, and this is, I'm not speaking on behalf of any of my professors, I feel like there's, there's kind of an even a put the woman in their place understanding in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that didn't exist in their stories. You know, that, that's weird to me. <laughs> um, and I uh, and I do remember very briefly my professor talking about you know, at the time that this was being put together, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. This is one of the stories of, and I'm probably saying this wrong, uh, but there's some legends that get built at this point in the rabbinical tradition, like Lilith, who was Adam's first wife, um, that that she. She had all the power of a man. That's the language that they use, you know. Mm -hmm. And and uh, and she gets kicked out of Eden way before anything else. It's like God wiped the slate slate clean. There's a lot of discussion. That's the reason that we have two creation stories at the beginning. That one was the original and included Lilith, and then they took her out, and that's why <laughs> it's so short and sweet. And then the other one is the one that they wrote without Lilith completely. Um, I don't know how much I want to put into that, but I'm saying that specifically because there is a sense that from here on till the end of the book that I, I do not approve of where there's this idea that women, your job is just to sit, look pretty, make babies and sit in the kitchen and leave our stuff as we tell you. Because that's not a genesis at all. Like, I don't, I don't, I mean, there's moments of that, you know, when we're in another place, but, and I might be romanticizing the fact that I think that women are elevated in the book of Genesis more than I probably should, but I don't necessarily read the Bible patriarchally. So that's probably my problem. Josh. Yes, Rob. I, I would like just to follow up on what you mentioned earlier. This is written 
all in the past. Yeah. So if, if you want to establish your authority and you're the only one that can write and you're the only one that can read, you're going to be able to put or write it however you wish. That's right. And if there is women that can read and write out there and you lose their books, then you're only going to hear one, one story. I, uh, I honestly and this just <laughs> struggle to think that God would elevate any person, any race, any sex over anybody else. Well, and I think that's beautiful. I think that's a, I think that's, we definitely come at it with that lens today. Um, I think that at this time, I don't think they have the foresight or the ability to see it that way that you are right now, which also bothers me because, you know, you think about it, <clears throat> they taught this way for centuries. And so, uh, it's not until much later that women get brought up back into the forefront, but I don't know. Uh, Dr. Savison just wrote another book about women in the Hebrew Bible that really challenges me to think about how women were the superheroes in the background all the time. Um, uh, even, even in the ways of their, their life choices. Specifically, I guess my, my thoughts and what I'm trying to say is we're reading what was written by somebody that ultimately is trying to establish their authority. Oh, yeah. They're the winner. <laughs> you can say they're writing history, but they're writing it to authorize their status or place in the community. They're writing it selfishly. Yes. <laughs> well, they get, they get <laughs> they, they, they yeah. they're, because they wrote this that's right they're the winners because they wrote it they're they're in charge those that those that are in power are going to write in such a way that empowers them like you're saying so yeah if you want to know if you want to know why they're doing everything they're doing all you have to do is read what they wrote exactly <laughs> that's exactly right which is which is why I'm wanting to have this discussion. Maybe it's the worst list. That's exactly right. <laughs> that's that's literally what I was going to say. Wish list. Karen said that it's like their wish list, and, and that's kind of what happens here. Part of the problem that I wanted us to have this discussion is because, really, from chapter thirty-six eight on, <clears throat> let me make sure I'm telling you the right thing. Uh. It is literally a, a work schedule and list of all of the things that they bring and how they bring it together. Um, it's, it's interesting to me that they bring all these names together, um, but at the, at the end, uh, it's weird that you spent all of this time in the book of Exodus getting to this point. And then Exodus uh, pretty much ends uh, with the setting up, setting up of the tabernacle that they spent five chapters building. Um, and, and, I, and I'm not saying that we're not going to read bits and pieces of it, but really, I, I just feel like this, 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 you can see the difference. Up until this point, we've been creating the how and the why, right? Well, the more the why. 
Why are we doing this? How, uh, what are we going to use to do this? And then now what happens is from 36, 8, you start to see the creation of the tabernacle. You, you want to hear the funny part? They use everything that was in the wish list in the chapters previous. <laughs> so like, for example, uh, I'm, I'm just going to read to verse 37. Uh, and then we're, we're just going to talk about bits and pieces of it. Um, because if I'm being totally honest with you, uh, just reading this is like reading the book of numbers for me. It's just, it becomes very repetitious and I don't think it has any theological significance other than here's a, a historical reference as to how they built, well, one person's historical reference on how the tabernacle was built. Um, and, and, and if you, and if you, if you need to go over some of these things, that's fine. But I honestly, I, I wanted us to have this kind of conversation, but my, my big thing is um, when we get to like chapter 38, verse 12, I want to read a little bit about that because he has a list of names there that is kind of fascinating. And then again, all of this stuff comes to the way that they said it was going to happen. Um, and then, and then really we get to chapter 40, um, where God starts bringing everything together and there's a consecration of the temple. So not to freak anybody out, we're, we're, we're finishing the book of Exodus today. That's, that's the plan. Um, and I said the P word, so it most likely will not happen now, but this is, this is my goal. Um, <laughs> Mainly because it's just it's just circular after this point. So uh, let's, yeah, I just I got a question about the breastplate when we get to it. Okay, uh, how about we just uh, we we kind of move past uh, eight through thirty seven and get to let's just go straight to the breastplate. The breastplate is in. Oh, that's that's after. Okay, let's just go to thirty-eight, verse twelve. If you're all right with that, uh, thirty-eight, verse twenty-one. I'm sorry. So what's happened is, is they've built all of the things that they've talked about. Mm -hmm. They built the building. They built the anointing oil and incense uh, thing. They built the altar. Um, they've put all of this stuff together, and then, and then what ends up happening is. Um, in chapter 38, verses 21 through 31, re remember the most important thing that happened last week was is that they, they, they asked for all of these things, and this is my favorite stewardship message, and they had an abundance. So now what they're doing is, is they're tallying what they have left over. So here we go. These are the records of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the covenant or pact which was drawn up at Moses' bidding, the work of the Levites under the direction of Ithamar, son of Aaron, the priest. So now we've got a son, Aaron's son. Remember, Aaron's sons will follow behind him. Um, now, Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, Ur, I'm sorry, son of Ur. Um, before I go too much further, you all remember the, the legend of Ben-Hur? The, the gladiator, like there's this, uh, that was supposedly Christian, and he was, uh, but he, there's a, there's a, there's a, this is where they got that name. 
by the way. I, I, I always forget to tell people that. Does, is there any historical fact in that? No, none whatsoever. But somebody was reading the Bible when they were writing the script for the movie Ben-Hur and found this and thought, ooh, that's cool. That's a good name. Um, uh, ben in Hebrew means of or son of. So you have son of her. Boom, right there. There's your son of her. His name is Ben-Hur, which is why... That became a movie. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> at the tribe of Judah had made all the Lord had commanded Moses. At his side was Ohaliah, son of uh, Ahishamach of the tribe of Dan. Now, now, you see how we're listing all the tribes now? Mm -hmm. Carver and designer and embroiderer and blue, purple, crimson yarns and in fine linen. And all the gold that was work, used for the work in all of the work of the sanctuary. Did you say sanctuary? Mm -hmm. See, now we've got a church word that has never been established yet, but they're using it. See, the embed, that, that was the part of the discussion. There's the sense of embedded theology that you cannot avoid. And here's your proof. We now have a name for it called the sanctuary. The elevation offering of gold came to 29 talents and a whole bunch of stuff. And then you get to 27. There's 100 talents of silver and a whole bunch of stuff. And then 29, the copper from the elevation came from the 70 on a whole bunch of stuff. And then 31 says the sockets of the enclosure round about the sockets of the gate of the enclosure and all of the pegs of the tabernacle and all of the pegs of, of the enclosure round about. Oh, isn't that sweet? So everything that God wanted came into fruition and they just proved it. It's their whole point. You see how that works? Brilliant writing. Not really, but it's cool. And then we get into the making of the priestly vestments. So maybe what we should do at this point, just pause and hear what Robert's question is. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to take you all the way to the end of it to uh, 30. Oh, yeah. The inscription. Yeah. They made the plate, the sacred diadem, out of pure gold and engraved on it like an inscription on the seal holy to the Lord. Yep. So God already knows that they're holy to him. This is just a, a badge for everybody else to see. No. I, and yes. I guess, I guess my question is why, why does it have to be engraved on, on there? The same I'm, reason that ordained clergy should wear stoles because i mean the only people that are going to wear that the people should already know that they're holy to the lord but the trick is it's a, I, I'm, I'm trying not to give you the straight answer is it really just for the people or is it for the person almost like it would be a reminder for the person to be where he's coming from who appointed him to his position and that he needs to be holy for the people that's right so to me it's kind of a starts here and goes it's he can't to, see it once he get it, gets that's it right he's, so he's not seeing it but it's on his chest it. right it's it's, no, it's attached to his turban it's turban yeah 31 oh even even more powerful <laughs> 
and even though he can't see it to me it's always it's there as a reminder because he doesn't wear that turban all the time i'm i'm thinking and so when he picks it up to put it on i mean it's there you'll see it yeah yeah did i tell you guys about the this this the understanding that god speaks to people by through the top down no did i ever tell you about this yeah a little i think i might have said something in sunday school but i don't think i've ever talked about it here um the, the the ancient Jewish culture um, were really physical. Like they, they knew stuff, but they weren't like doctors or whatever, but they knew stuff. So like even in my sermon last Sunday, Jeremiah and Isaiah both have God touch their lips. So God gives them the word of the divine to their actual mouths. That's a physical, visceral reaction. There's a thing that happens in the Hebrew Bible that God touches people through their head like it's the it's the closest thing to god you want to think primitively if i'm standing up my head is closer to god than anything else uh, so there's this idea that god touches them on the head and 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 blesses them when you anoint somebody you don't anoint them on the chest it's on their forehead or on top of their head samuel dumps the jar of anointment oil on the top of the head because that's how you did it from the top down there's, there's, there's not a lot of archaeological proof for this. There's a lot of anthropological discussion on this, but there's a, there's a basic understanding that there's this thing about God coming from the, the closest thing to God, which would be our heads, and that, which makes sense that the headdress has these words uh, on it. So even if they see it, God is touching them, to speak the words of the divine to the people. The, All I can see in this is the, the guys on their little rugs praying to the Lord. And it's yeah. not the head that's closest to him. <laughs> right, right. There's some truth to that. <laughs> <laughs> so for, for me, I, I have no problem with the vestments of the priest. Uh, there's a lot of detail into this. This is on purpose. Uh, I don't want to be flipping about it, but there's a lot of show to it. You know, there's a lot of a lot of gold, a lot of special stones, um, very expensive linen. I mean, some of this stuff in here, you know, even the royalty had a hard time getting. Um, so th this is not a, a small thing. Let, let's just kind of read it a little bit, if you don't mind. Like at the very beginning, it says the ephod, I'm at verse 2, chapter 39, verse 2. Ephod was made of gold, blue, purple, and crimson yarns, and fine twisted linen. Again, all of those things connotate royalty or um, special. Gold is as expensive as it was then as it is today. Um, they hammered out the sheets of gold and cut threads to be worked into designs among the blue the purple and the crimson yarns, and among the fine linen. They made for it attaching shoulder pieces. They were attached at, at, at its ends, at its two ends. The decorated band that was upon it was made, made like it of one piece with it of gold, purple, crimson yarns, and fine twisted linen. The Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And then there you get to uh, verse 6. They bordered the, mine says lazuli. Some of yours is going to say onyx. Onyx. Uh, with gold engraved with seal gravings on the names of the sons of Israel. So there's the sons of Israel, there's their 12 
tribes. Uh, they were set on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the Israelites as the Lord had commanded Moses. The breast piece was made in the style of the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and crimson yards and fine twisted linen. It was square. They made the breast piece doubled, a span in length and a span in width doubled. They set it in four rows of stones. The first row, this is the part I always like. So I, I don't want to be flippant, but I always look at Darth Vader's chest armor, and that's the first thing I think of because he's got these buttons that go across his chest. It's the only thing that we can really physically see and without looking on Google. Uh, but it's, there's a, a row of carnelian, chrysolite, emerald, uh, what's, what you all say? Beryl. Beryl. Carnelian, crystallite, and beryl. Okay. Uh, and so it's an emerald. Yeah. Emerald. Yeah. Uh, the second row, turquoise, the sapphire, and amethyst. That's, that, that means stone. That's your lapis lazuli. What's your Moonstone. 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 Ooh, interesting. <laughs> interesting translation. Which uh, would be the sapphire? Yeah, I'm guessing so. Uh, it's, it's fascinating to me with the translations of these. Um, the third row then would be uh, a yacinth, an agate, and a crystal. Amethyst. Amethyst. Well, we could say that was instead of the yacinth, but do they have that on there? Well, I mean, that was the last one. Yacinth, okay. agate. Yeah, crystal. Amethyst. Instead of crystal, it was amethyst. And then on this, the fourth row is a barrel, a lapazuli, uh, and a jasper. What is a jasper? Um, it's like a green, um, it's a green kind of rock, I think. Some kind of jasperus has colors in it, but I don't, yeah, that may not be the thing they use for jewels. I don't I'm know. wondering if they use that for the where you had where it was quartz or something. Mm. I'm not really sure, but it's uh, it's it's these are hard to find rocks <laughs> like, like these, these are not. Just and they're going, in the desert. And they're in the desert. You know, it's a, and whether the, whether the Egyptians gave them yeah, that kind of stuff when they were giving them jewelry, I don't know. Yeah, that, that's a good question. So we don't know where they got them. No. But we know they have a lot of gold uh, <laughs> for some reason. To me, I would think by the time, because they're weaving gold thread in with all the linen stuff by the time you get that in there and then you have the gold breastplate and you have the gold thing on his head that's a lot of weight yeah well you only wear <laughs> it one one day a year <laughs> good thing yeah you probably and they're probably small men <laughs> yeah, i mean yeah, yeah, very small you're, you're all thinking logical this is not logical yeah. <laughs> this is gigantic yes you can see pictures, and the stones have to be, I mean, you know, the amethyst and the emeralds are about. <laughs> well, one of them was labeled uh, the stone worker, so, so hopefully somebody knows how to cut it. Yeah, no, this is, this is a problem. This is, this, is, uh, this is an interesting thing. Um, I've seen a lot of replications of this. Um, and, and even when I was in, in Israel, when we were at the uh, it wasn't the Dead Sea Scrolls Museum. It was, it was some museum I went to. I can't remember the name of it now, but they they had an image of what they thought it would look like. And, and when we're when we're think, seeing this, we're 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 seeing big and tall, right? It's only coming in their chest. 
So the image was like about that big. So the, it could be little bitty stones. It could have been little bitty stones. And, I, and, I, and I've seen that more designed than something that covered their whole chest. It says it covered their whole chest, but really all of them have seen that they're, you know, they're about five inches by five inches. They're not ginormous. Okay, where did they obtain all this all this material? <laughs> well, we were, we were, you know, we were we just go out and buy it. Where did they, where did they get it? Yeah. The local I, mean, I, I, I really liked uh, Sally's idea. I think that if, if the Egyptians didn't have it, they, they would have gotten it someplace from Egypt. Remember, Egypt is this metropolitan, cosmopolitan place that people from all over the world had come, had, were coming to. And they would have had pretty rocks to trade. Like, <laughs> and I mean, that's, streets. And uh, yeah, and streets. Yes, so, and, the, and the gold, remember, they, they gave us an out at the very beginning of at the Exodus story that the, the Egyptians gave to the ones leaving gold and silver mm -hmm. and copper for their journey, you know. <laughs> uh, so, so there's our out, right? So we know that's where they got the gold. I think that the writers are trying to imply that they most likely got them from them also. And this must have been lying around and they saw it. Um, and they I, called them whatever names they knew. Right. So that's why they could have multiple names for multiple rocks. Mm -hmm. They didn't know what they were. And the same problem we have with our translations. So like even when the Greeks are translating this in, from the Septuagint, uh, well, the, translating the Septuagint, they had different names for these things than we do, you know. And so it's fascinating to me because even, even in our translations, you know, we have three different names for these rocks. But that's just because for us, it's it looks like this color. <laughs> the, the part that's important for them was the colors. Mm. The colors mattered more than anything. Um, and their value. I was going to say, going through the Red, the red Sea, when it was parted, you know, the kids... Always like to pick up things that are pretty and shiny, and so <laughs> I love how you all learned the art of midrash. Yeah, <laughs> it is so makes me so happy. Uh, but yeah, there's there's a lot of that too to be said, you know. Uh, and who's going to find these rocks? Well, kids, you know. I mean, nobody's walking around with rocks in their hands. Kids are, um, and then it just kind of goes on. My my favorite part here is, is that they. Uh, they make the frames and then they make gold and rings of gold, uh, attach them to the two ends of the breastplate, verse 17, attach the two golden cords to the two rings at the end of the breastpiece. And then they fasten the two ends of the cords to the frames, yada, yada, yada. And then Gosh. they make, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Robert. Uh, they referenced the 12 stones uh, representing the 12 tribes. Oh yeah, I was supposed yes. to say that. Do, do they ever distinguish who's at the top, who's at the bottom, which rocks, which tribe, or do they just, they're all represented by? It says one for each of the names. Yes, yeah, it says one for each of the names. I, I, I've seen this, I'm, I'm trying to be careful, because the short answer is, Robert, I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't know. I've seen scholars from all walks of life that said yes this is the tribe of because it was this color um, <laughs> i've seen them say it it's the tribe of this because of that um I, and, and they're all they, they all have their theories i i don't know i've never 
really spent that it much time. It can't have been important to them or they would have said which one was which. I agree. Mm -hmm. I, I, I would go with Sally's opinion on this in the sense that I think if it was important to them, they, they would have said, said the Carnelian is the tribe of blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Whatever. And, and, and it goes they, in the first row. <laughs> and, and, he, and he's got to be number one. And this is number two. And we're going to number them this way. One, two, three, four, five, six. And just go down to the twelve. But they didn't do that here. So I think I think that's because they, they they assumed that we would know they would put them in the order of age. Sure. So the first one would be his first one, Reuben, the oldest one. First one would be the oldest son, and the last one would be Benjamin. I mean, we could go that route, but Joseph is the one that's lifted up above all. And you know, so I, I mean, there's but maybe not in here, but the, maybe not in here. On the rest, of and, and then and then you then we've got this whole conversation as well. Is uh, which one is Aaron related to? Well, he's got to be related to Levi, obviously, you know. But it's, I think, the I think I'm going to go with both of these ideas. I think the assumption is, is the people that are hearing this know, and I think there's the other thing is that if it was truly uh, something they wanted us to know for sure. They would have said, "Here's the order, and here's why." Um, I think there's a I think there's a traditional thing that's happening in the background that we just don't have that information. Okay, and the only reason I was asking here would be a chance for the writers yep. to elevate themselves to the top in the best rock. hundred <laughs> percent. You're absolutely right. <laughs> so they didn't care either because they didn't do it. Yeah. So I think I think that for them it's it's the it's the image of God through the aspect of worship through all the people. You know, I think that they wanted people to see this person is elevated, their this is their vestments are designed in such a way um, to make them elevated. Um, and then off they went. Also, I was gonna throw out because I don't think we'll ever get there or not anytime soon. Um you know, this is their reflection of all the other people's kings. That's right. I mean, you know, they're the it's the traditional fight between government and state if, or church and state. If you want to look at it that way, they don't have towers. I'm, I'm going to go back to the medieval days. They don't have towers to build the biggest one. So, you know, this is them elevating for the outside world. How important this and everybody, person is. And everybody that's going to see them knows that this person must be elevated above others. Yeah. Same thing with the Pope. That's exactly right. Well, yes. So the Pope's color-coded, but he still gets to wear rings. Yeah. And, 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 and I'm not talking about now. I'm, I'm going back. Yeah. I'm with you. I think part of the struggle that we have in the 21st century is just the ways that clergy... I've had people be extremely upset with me when I put on a robe and stole. Um, because to them, it's elevating myself above them. And, and that's not the way I look at it. But for some, they grew up believing that. And, and that's, it's terrifying, you know, because I, I, I didn't want to wear a robe and stole because I wasn't ordained. And, and honestly, I didn't want to be compared to my dad, but I can't, I can't avoid that. So, uh, but now I look at my robe and stole as my uniform. Like it's, 
there's there's a moment that I have to remind myself, okay, this is not about me. This is not about us. This is the, the word of God that God has put upon my heart. And this 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 helps me rem remember those things. You don't it's, see that much in the Christian church. Which ones? Ministers wearing a stole. Yeah, it just depends on where you go. But is this why you don't wear it every Sunday? Because of sometimes feedback on what you've Sometimes, the way you feel. Yeah, it's, just, it's about how I feel that day. <laughs> Honestly. I don't see this any different than, than the Catholic Church where they color code their people. So you know which one's which, if that makes oh. sense. Every, every church is from Europe. Did. I want to make sure we say that correctly. Lutherans do it. Methodists do it. Episcopals do it. Presbyterians do it. All of them have a system of recognizing who is what and how. Um, and it's, without calling it color coding, there is a sense of who is an authority by what they're wearing. Yeah. For example, well, I can wear a clerical collar. I'm 100% available to wear a clerical collar. I've been given um, ecclesiastical authority by the Episcopal Church in Kansas which means that I'm allowed to do anything in an Episcopal service, including serving Eucharist, which gives me the ability to wear a clerical collar. I just choose not to, but they will. That's, that's the part of their culture. So in the Jewish faith, it's more of a, it's like a uniform thing. And, and I agree to hundred percent here that they, are letting the other folks see that this person is of some authority on the voice of God. Yeah. The authority is the part you're right on the money. They represent God, this person does. And if you used to bring in um, John the Baptist, they're not going to be overly impressed. Right. Exactly. Yeah. See, I go with that. I guess what I'm trying to say is it's necessary for the world they live in. Right. Yeah, so John, John the Baptist would come in and he's wearing camel clothes. Yeah, yeah. You know, okay. he's, he's not, you're not going to put him in front of everybody and say he speaks on behalf of God. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. But the priest only wears this stuff one time a year, you said. Well, yeah, it's like for the, so, for, for the, big, the big day, um, but they haven't established yet. <laughs> so I mean if he's wearing clothes like John the Baptist I mean how are you how are you going to know know that you're the priest and that's right yeah there's there's there is no anthropological or archaeological evidence that the priest wore these every single day like they definitely wore them for specific times of the year for very short periods of time and Robert's right. When passing tribes would walk by or, you know, come and hang out in their, their meeting place, uh, they would see the high priest walk through the town. Remember, remember what they said, that, that the people would rise as the high priest would walk through. <laughs> Moses did it too, right? As they're walking to the tent of meeting, people would see this and then they would know, oh, there's the voice of God. And this is, I, this is where I agree with Robert 100%. It's the same idea that we created with the, the, the Pope, the papacy. You know, when the Pope walked into the room, people knew that this is what you did, that they were a certain thing. Yes, uh, 
Robert alluded to the fact that at one point they had rings that was supposed to re represent specific things. Um, you know, obviously uh, Pope Francis doesn't do that today, but there are the, his predecessors sure say did. So, but again, I would argue that not not just them, um, all all religious leaders and all religious movements have some form of visual sign of authority for others, including their congregants. Uh, that's important. So like when Karen asked me about mm -hmm. the Christian churches, some Christian churches, uh, ministers, they, they, they look as putting the robe and stole on as not as a place of authority, but as a, a place of humility. We put these, these things on humbly serving the Lord. Um, but the congregants view that as sometimes as I put this on to elevate my authority to be the congregants. Yeah, yeah, to be pious. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I like that word. Is there a difference in gener generation? Yes. Generation? My grandfather would never, ever walk into a sanctuary that he was preaching yeah. without a rope and stole on. Or my grandmother, for that matter. Um, my dad wore a robe and stole every Sunday until I asked him about it in 1999. <laughs> and then my dad wears it just every other Sunday, I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah. Whatever no, it is gold. <laughs> what did you say, Robert? I said, whatever Sunday, you're not there. Or maybe right. <laughs> you're not there. He's not going to wear it. He wears them even still. But we, he and I joke about it because now we like we have skull <laughs> collections. So we, we, we joke about who has what and but you had to have permission from the Episcopalians to, I mean. Oh, the clerical collar is, is, is a, yeah, yeah, it's a sign of just being a part of the clergy. Um, in the United States, the clerical collar uh, was supposed to be used to being a visual signifying sense that when I went to hospitals, right. when I was out in the public, I was a part of the clergy. And, and it was supposed to, to, for lack of a better phrase, take away the demonic or the, the demonization of priests only wearing the clerical collar. Uh, Protestant ministers have just as much religious authority as, as they did, so they used it as a statement. You see a lot of women clergy in the Christian mm -hmm. church, disciples of Christ, wearing the clerical collar. Mm -hmm. And again, that's fine, but it's not necessarily it's a european thing ergo <laughs> i don't wear it <laughs> so um, camelites aren't going to do it yeah uh, i mean i think i think that that's a i think this is a good uh, conversation because i think if we have the conversation of how what the place is going to look like and how it's supposed to work to worship it also then elevates the conversation of what does the person leading the worship look like and, and what are we supposed to do about it and, and this is very clearly uh, sacred vestments that they're creating here that, that's going to go on for millennia for them. So the robe and the stole, you wouldn't dare wear the robe without the stole. Oh, no, I don't, I don't think it matters to me. For some oh, okay. <laughs> but the stole is more symbolic than the robe? Or uh, I look at it as decorative. I look at it as like a tie. <laughs> uh, because I'm, I'm not I'm not a Presbyterian like the Presbyterian would look at those stoles as they have some sort of liturgical or 
function. And, and, and for me, it's not. I like the liturgical colors because it's fun. It keeps the worship service from being just blah all year round, you know. So That's I the like first thing I noticed when he wears a stole. <laughs> yeah, I like I, I, your stole. I love my stoles. Yeah. Other than you only wear your red one. Yeah, that's another one. That really, so it is kind of frustrates me. So if we follow the liturgical calendar, just like the Jewish culture is doing here, right? They're establishing this. Uh, the European Christian culture created the liturgical calendar, so we have specific colors that go throughout the year, just like the ephod. That's or not the ephod, the breastpiece is being designed here. Uh, then you get to the color red, which is probably the most powerful liturgical color in the whole thing. But we only get to wear it for two weeks, and that's it. So, like Pentecost is that's the only time you wear red, or at someone's ordination. And I hate to say it this way, but ordinations don't happen very often. So, so that's so then red gets to be a sacred color. If you ever had a sermon that was fire and brimstone, maybe you should I wear, wear my red. Yeah, I'd be okay <laughs> so we would know. That's right. I'm, I'm Take a, I'm notice. A... It's serious today. <laughs> yeah. That's I don't know if any, uh, Sally maybe would have even knew him, but Jay Wilford Walker was our preacher in Midwest City, and he started off at the Guthrie Church, and he said when he was in his younger days, he got up and he preached a fire and brimstone sermon. And you have to understand that Reverend Walker was a very mild meek man and didn't didn't ever speak harshly so he he joked about doing a fire and brimstone at the at the church and he says that's the only sunday i ever did that because right as i got to the peak of my thing the balcony fell oh. <laughs> i think <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, man, I all about that yeah no that's awesome it's awful but awesome yeah so i i think the the, the part that's fascinating about this is that um, all of these things we can relate to. You know, this is not this is not a separation of, but this is the beginning of that discussion. This is this is where the begin the, the discussion began for the Jewish culture. Is what is the priest supposed to wear? How is the tabernacle supposed to look? Uh, then they give a consecrating and conversation that they have. Um, I know I'm, I'm a little over, but we started a little bit late. Um, Verses 9 through 16 of chapter 40, I want to just, just read very quickly because there's a, a worship aspect that gets created here that, that's important for us uh, that says exactly what they're supposed to do with things. Like he says, you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it to consecrate it and all of its furnishings so that it all shall be holy. See how that Oil becomes this uh, divine liminal space between the, the God, the divine, and the human. It's the ways that God can touch it without it catching on fire. Like it's, uh, this is where that comes from. Then anoint the altar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, anoint the altar and all its utensils to consecrate the altar so that the altar shall be most holy and anoint the, the labor and its stand to consecrate it. You shall bring Aaron and his sons forward to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with the water. Put the sacral vestments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him. Remember, oils that that substance that allows God to trans, um, I don't want to use the phrase transmute, but be able to come from heaven to Aaron. He has to be anointed. It's kind of like the, just the picture of it. If, if you pour it over his head, it just rolls down. That's right. 
and God can actually touch him. And so then uh, bring his sons forward, put tunics on them, anoint them, and as you have anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. This their anointing shall serve them for the everlasting priesthood throughout the ages. This Moses did just as the Lord had commanded him. And so he did. Um, and, and not that I, I want to say that we're done, but I, I would say that we're done except for chapter 40, verse 33. Gonna, we're going to finish the book of Exodus today reading this passage. After they had done all of these things, uh, it says, uh, chapter 30, verse 33, chapter 40, and he set up the enclosure around the tabernacle and the altar and put up the screen for the gate of the enclosure. And when Moses had finished the work, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the presence of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the presence of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And when the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out on their various journeys. But if the cloud did not lift, they would not set out until such time as it did lift. For over the tabernacle, a cloud of the Lord rested by day and fire would appear in it by night in the view of all the house of Israel throughout their journeys. May God bless the reading of God's Holy Scripture. Amen. So, you can really visualize that just by that description, that right? reading. You can just see it. There's, it it's, it's awesome. Every time I read that, I'm just, oh, man, that'd be cool. I'd freak <laughs> out, but it'd be cool. You know? So when did that stop? Uh, well, for them, it's the, we, we, we try every single day so that it'll happen again. And we might not see it in our lifetime, but somebody and we know what it looks like. And, we, and when, it, when it does happen, this is what it's going to look like. That's the idea. I guess I would have not wanted to ever have left that, that tent. <laughs> yeah, I know there's a sermon right there all by itself, Robert. <laughs> you know, there's, there's one prophet, and I don't remember their name, so forgive me, but... One prophet who has this mountaintop experience and says, God, please don't make me go back down. You know, make, please don't make me go back to the people. I just want to be in this presence with you. Um, and God says, no, I gave you this feeling, this moment, so that you could take this to others. You know, I want to say it's Elijah, but that's not true. But uh, it might be Elijah. But there's this... Uh, there's this moment where they just don't want to be away from God, and that's okay. I think that's, I think there's a, I think that's why they end the book of Exodus this way, because they didn't want it to end, and that's why it keeps talking about their various journeys. When the transfiguration, they wanted to build tabernacles right there because of the right. That's another one. Yeah, the transfiguration story. That's right. Well, to me, it also kind of says when it's in verse 36, when the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out on their various journeys. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, it's a time of like you don't want to leave, but you know that you have to. Mm -hmm. Yep. Take that feeling. So then when we start Leviticus. Well, um, let me stop the recording and then we'll kind of go from there. Yeah.